Well, good day, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for listening. Today, of course, is New Year's Eve as we're preparing to enter into a new year and kind of closing out some of our discussion and our learning from the Christmas messages. And while this portion of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke is not distinctly a Christmas message, I kind of view it as a way to close out Luke's story as he closes it out in his Gospel in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus makes an interesting statement about how he is out or about the Father's business. And so considering that we're one week out about it from Christmas, I find that there's some interesting after Christmas responses from folks. People usually fall into a couple of or a few very distinctive categories. One group is sad. There is great anticipation in the lead up to Christmas Day. There's the baking, the cooking, the family get-togethers, the unique traditions that have been a part of Christmas celebrations for years, and then it comes and goes like a whirlwind. Christmas Day arrives, and it ends, and it all seemed so fast, and now it's over, and people are just a little bit sad. The second group often is the I'm glad it's over group. It might have been fun. I enjoyed it. I'm not being irreverent, but I'm glad that the busyness is done. I'm ready to take down the decorations and for life to get back to some kind of sense of normalcy. And the last group maybe enjoyed everything, but in the week between Christmas and New Year's Day, they find themselves a little bit lost. As I saw one person comment on the internet, they said, I don't know what day it is, I don't know what time it is, and I feel like my body probably needs some vegetables. So the biblical narrative, too, moves on from the Christmas story rather quickly. We have the fascinating story of the wise men visiting Jesus by Matthew. Luke gives us the presentation of Jesus in the temple and the insightful prophecies of Simeon and Anna. We're actually going to talk about that briefly And Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, doesn't record the birth story at all. Rather, beginning when Jesus was around 30 years old, he starts there with his earthly ministry, and the Apostle John opens his Gospel in a much different way than the other three. Luke, however, does give us a couple of stories from the early life of Jesus that are completely unique to his Gospel. These stories are an encounter that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph have when Jesus is but eight days old in the temple, a brief snippet of Jesus again in the temple when he was 12 years old, and that we find that these are the only inspired stories that we have of Jesus' childhood. And today we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke right after the Nativity story. This is Luke 2, beginning in verse 39. We're going to start out just reading two verses Verse 39, and when they had performed everything, they being Mary and Joseph, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we're going to hop around just a bit. I want to back up and touch on Jesus' visit to the temple, which preceded what we just read while he was still in his infancy before moving on to an intriguing story that closes out Luke's narrative of Jesus as a child. When Mary and Joseph first arrived in the temple, 
they were going to satisfy the requirement of the Jewish law. So after eight days, eight days being from the time of birth, Jesus is now eight days old, parents of firstborn male children were to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. But if they were too poor to afford a lamb, they could offer two turtle doves or two young pigeons. This was called the offering of the poor. And it provides some context for the type of economic situation that Mary and Joseph were in. Now, Mary and Joseph didn't have the means for the more costly lamb, so they offered the birds instead. And the male babies would also be circumcised at this time. And this identified Jesus with his Jewish culture. This identified Jesus within the great covenant of God that was made to Abraham many, many centuries earlier. And it identified Jesus with sinners. Even from his first moments, though Jesus knew no sin and was not born in sin, as you and I are and would never sin, he identified with the plot of sin so that he could redeem us from it. And while they were there being good and obedient Jewish people, they were met with two strange encounters from a man and a woman at the temple, a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Simeon had been told by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. To back up in Luke 2 in verse 27, we read, And he, Simeon, came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is a special person, and we know very little about him. In fact, this is the only thing that we read of Simeon in Scripture. He had been led by the Holy Spirit of God to this special moment. He loved God, and Simeon had eagerly been looking forward to the coming Messiah. The scriptures were clear that God would be sending the Redeemer, and Simeon believed the wonderful promises of God. They were real to him, and God had promised Simeon that his faithfulness would be rewarded. May I say here that the return of Jesus is just as certain as his arrival was in Bethlehem. But just like most of the people back then, we go about our lives with very little realization that Christ could return at any moment. Like Simeon, however, we can live in the joyous confidence of our God's appearing. Simeon's life was no less productive because he eagerly anticipated the coming of the Lord. On the contrary, it was all the more packed with fulfillment, hope, and purpose because Simeon knew God had not abandoned his people and a new great day was about to dawn upon the earth. And then, along with Simeon's words, there's a prophetess named Anna. And she approaches Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and she gives thanks to God. And we read that she had long been a widow in this story. Now, the translation here into English is odd, depending on what Bible you have sitting before you. Some translations indicate that Anna was around 84 years old, which is probably correct while some and others indicate that because of the word virgin, that she was around 13 when she married, 
and her husband died when she was 20 and that she had lived 84 years as a widow, putting her at 104 years of age. But in any case, she had been a tremendously faithful woman for a very long time, and here she is given an amazing blessing. She had devoted her life to God's service and worship, and now in the twilight of her life, she is given an in-person glimpse of the Savior of the world. She had again devoted herself fully to God. Now much could be said about these two encounters alone. They're wonderful stories, they're beautiful stories, but we'll save those for another time. After these two captivating encounters, Mary and Joseph leave to return to their hometown of Nazareth. Now Luke takes a time jump here from the infant Jesus of eight days old to Jesus at 12 years of age. Now we know very little of Jesus' life from the time that he was about one month old to the time when he was 12, except for the general statement that we have in Luke 2.40. Now we may be curious about the details of his childhood, but there isn't anything we need to know except what we are told by the Holy Spirit and his word. But now we're going to pick up in Luke 2 verse 41 and read a slightly longer story that will be more of the focus of our study today. Now, his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. <coughs> and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Once again here, the simplicity of the story. What Luke tells us and what he doesn't tell us is remarkable. And if you're like me, you may find yourself clamoring for just a little bit more. There is a lot of curiosity about this childhood of Jesus, how he, as the Son of God, might have enjoyed his young years playing in the streets of Nazareth, the friendships that he would have had, the things that he would have said, and all that he would have done. And some may wonder why the gospel writers did not fill us in on the details of Jesus' childhood. And to satisfy this longing, some people have looked to uninspired, non-biblical writings that were penned much later than the Gospels. And these were written long after Jesus had ascended back to the Father and after Mary and the apostles and other eyewitnesses would have passed away. And it's important to note that the further one gets from the original events, the more falsehoods and legends are apt to develop. And so while these may be fun to read when we read Greek mythology or tall tales of other historical figures, 
They have no place in the true understanding of who Jesus is and the nature and character of God. And so there were some fraudulent writings uh, from the second century known as the Gnostics and apocryphal gospels that record very unusual and fanciful stories of Jesus being a child and being lonely as he was playing in the dirt. And so as he was playing, he shaped figures of birds with mud and he did some magical maneuverings of a sort and he turned these mud birds into living birds that then flew and he could have as playmates. But all we're told in the text initially is that from the time that Jesus was presented in the temple until the time that he appeared again at the age 12, he grew, he became strong in spirit, and he became filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And John, the writer of the Gospel of John, largely satisfies the curiosity for me as he wrote his gospel near the end of the gospel. He recorded, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Frankly, I do believe that in eternity to come, we'll be informed of these many wonderful other things Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Joyously, Jesus himself can share with us these events, but certainly we are given all that we need to know. So now let's dive into this portion of Holy Scripture here from Luke chapter 2. So we first read that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now, the Old Testament law, the Hebrew law, uh, Bible, the Hebrew law, prescribed that able-bodied Jews attend festivals in Jerusalem three times a year. It was the Passover feast, which is what we're reading about here, something called Shavuot, which is literally the weeks, or Pentecost from the Greek, and then in autumn, something called the Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths. And my apologies if I'm pronouncing those Hebrew words incorrectly. So attendance at these major events had been commanded in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and it was customary for all the faithful to make these pilgrimages in large groups. They would have taken large family caravans. They were both a worshipful time and a festive time. There was a deep sense of rich community as they would all join together. Frankly, in my mind's eye, this seems kind of fun to be able to do something like this. And Luke tells us that when the time was finished for the celebration of the Passover, these pilgrims returned to their homes. It's interesting as Luke writes this, you may recall Luke was not a Jew. Luke was a Gentile and now recording these marvelous ceremonies and these marvelous pilgrimages that the Jewish people took. But as they were returning, since the practice was to travel by caravan with close friends, family, and extended family, the caravan would be quite large, including, once again, immediate family, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and at this time, perhaps other brothers and sisters, and then other family like aunts and uncles, cousins, neighbors from the villages, and so forth. So the custom in these caravans was that the women and the children would be at the front, and the men and the other young men would be in the back. And so Jesus kind of being on that threshold between a child and a young man is probably safe to assume that Mary thought that Jesus was at the back with Joseph because he wasn't with her. And in like manner, Joseph probably thought that Jesus was up in the front with Mary. Definitely safe assumptions, but of course both of them were ultimately wrong. And as the pilgrims would travel at the end of the day, 
they would set up a camp, they would pitch camp, and all the friends and relatives would get together around the campfire and spend some time talking about their pilgrimage to the great city of Jerusalem. And almost certainly it was at this point that Mary and Joseph realized that their son was missing. Now to be fair and sympathetic to Mary and Joseph, it would not be difficult to lose track of a young boy with such a large group of travelers. So we shouldn't accuse Mary and Joseph of being neglectful here, but Mary must have felt bad enough losing the Messiah, the Son of God. So for those of us who are parents or remember some difficult times raising our children or grandchildren, we can at least find some comfort that Mary lost the Son of God. If she can make a few mistakes parenting, then rest assured, we can too. So as we would expect, they returned to Jerusalem trying to find Jesus. It was an arduous journey. It took them three days to find Jesus ultimately in Jerusalem in the temple. So to add to the concerned feelings of Mary and Joseph, it took them probably just one day to get back to the city and the remaining time they spent trying to find Jesus. Could he be by the city gate? Could he be somewhere in the market? But ultimately, they find him at the temple. And when they find him, Jesus is sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So for three days, it seems, a 12-year-old Jesus discussed God's word and astonished those who was listening and asking him questions with all of his understanding and his answers. Now, this was common during Passover. Religious leaders and theologians would stay and discuss matters of religious importance. They would debate the scriptures. They would debate issues. They would discuss God's word and ask probing and burning questions. But this was normally reserved for the high intellectuals of the day. Now imagine a sixth grade middle school student discussing physics with a rocket scientist and you get some picture of what was happening here. But as Jesus is questioned by his parents, he says, I must be about my father's business. Some translations say, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And Jesus is making a sublime point here. In that day, there was nothing more natural than a son taking up his father's business. And Jesus did follow in Joseph's footsteps as a carpenter, but his words here show that he understood his unique relationship to his heavenly father. And I will say, however, that this brings up a fascinating discussion that we do not have a full answer to this side of eternity, but it serves as a present opportunity for us to understand the unique nature of Jesus, that is his dual nature. Certainly, this seemed to be a moment of transition for Mary and Joseph in their own understanding of Jesus. It was a treasured moment, to be sure, but a pivotal moment nonetheless. You see, in Christianity, we believe in one God who has one essence but is revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I realize this is challenging and even mysterious. Frankly, there are all sorts of human illustrations that have been concocted to try to explain this triune nature of God in simplistic terms, and I think that they all fall short. So while I do think it's worthy to a worthy study and discussion to be had, at the end of the day, I have come to find an acceptance of this as a revelation from God, clearly taught and revealed in Scripture, and I find both comfort and satisfaction in that. For Jesus, it's important to note, though, that he did not begin 
to exist in Bethlehem. You see, for you and I, we had a definite beginning. When we were conceived, we began to exist. Now, our souls are immortal. We will live forever, either in the presence of God, if we accept the free gift of salvation offered by and through Jesus Christ, or in eternal separation from God. In this way, humans, you and I, are what we call semi-transcendent. We began to exist at a certain point, but we will not cease to exist. Jesus, however, is fully transcendent. He's transcendent. He has eternally existed, and he transcends all creation. And while this may sound a little academic, it is crucial in understanding the biblical faith. And this understanding of Jesus is what separates true Christian religion from perversions of the faith, such as we find in Mormonism or with Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus chose to become a man, born of a virgin, so he did not inherit the fallen sin nature of humanity. So we say Jesus is one person with two natures. He is both fully God and fully man. The Apostle Paul expounds on this and encourages us to follow Christ as a model. He says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the incarnation, the Son of God did not surrender any of his attributes. His divine nature is still eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. God did not stop being God when he took on a human nature in Jesus. At the same time, the human nature retained its own attributes, being finite, contained, unable to be at more than one place at the same time, limited in some things. All of those attributes of humanity remained attributes of Jesus' humanity. And in this moment, when Mary and Joseph approached Jesus, he said, I must be about my father's business. These are the first recorded words Luke gives us of Jesus in his gospel. And it serves as a theme for all that Luke writes. But we read that Mary and Joseph did not understand the statement which Jesus spoke to them. Jesus' statement told them something about his identity as the unique Son of God to God the Father, and they fully did not understand it. And we shouldn't be too hard on Mary and Joseph at this moment. This was a lot to take in, and just because they did not fully understand in this moment did not mean that they would never understand. Certainly, we know that they did come to have an understanding of who Jesus was. And most boys began following their father's business at around the age of 12 to 13. So Jesus is doing this in the temple, teaching, guiding, and instructing people with the truth of God with the father's business. Luke closes on this section with the following statement, that they leave the temple, they go down to Nazareth, and he was subject to his mother, but Mary, who subject to them, but Mary, his mother, kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It's interesting to me that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Jesus would carry the stigma of being a Nazarene all his earthly life. Later, 
when Jesus was calling his disciples, one of them, Nathaniel, looked at Philip and jabbed, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip responded, come and see, perhaps shrugging his shoulders as he made this statement. But Jesus was subject to Mary and Joseph. The knowledge of who he was did not make him proud or haughty. He obeyed and honored his parents once again, even in this way, giving us a model, model to follow. And we read that Mary kept and treasured all these things in her heart. Mary is so sweet. We read multiple times similar phrases such as this. Certainly Mary had a connection that no other person had with Jesus. The precious moments of the shepherds arriving in Bethlehem, later the wise men, and now this unusual event in the temple became treasured reflections in her heart. And it is here, too, that lead most scholars to conclude that Luke interviewed Mary as he was writing his gospel. Statements like this came in the raw and impassioned moments of Mary reflecting on the amazing role she had in God's redemptive plan. And Jesus grew in a close, personal relationship with his heavenly Father. And he also grew in his human relationships and friendships. So some takeaways from this is serving God in the common place of everyday life. Mary and Joseph would have spent much of their time doing very ordinary things, changing diapers, clothing Jesus, feeding him, helping him learn to talk, learn to walk, run, and play, cooking dinner, cleaning house, going to synagogue, teaching the scriptures, praying, and taking care of friends and family. Simeon had spent a long time in the temple praying, eagerly waiting for God to make a great revelation to him, but had remained faithful. Anna, serving for decades and decades as a widow, eagerly praying and serving God. Growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would mature into boyhood and then a young adulthood. He would fulfill the responsibilities of the eldest son. And then sometime as Joseph disappeared from the scene, Jesus became the man of the family. He worked as a carpenter, supported his family, loved God, and proved himself faithful in a thousand small things before he formally started his earthly ministry. There's a sweet poem that I love that reminds us not to dismiss the common things of life. It's written by Algernon James Pollock. He said, A commonplace life we say and we sigh, but why should we sigh as we say? The commonplace sun and the commonplace sky makes up the commonplace day. The moon and the stars are commonplace things, and the flowers that bloom and the birds that sings. But dark were the world and sad our lot, if the flowers failed and the sun shone not, and God who studied each separate soul out of the commonplace lives made his beautiful whole. I don't know about you, but I often need a reminder that God uses us in the common, ordinary things of life to accomplish his great work. We may long for the big and fantastic, but God calls us to obedience and faithfulness in the common everyday service to him. As the well-known commentator wrote, Mr. Morrison, a Christian does not always do extraordinary things. He does ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And then finally, we understand something of the chief end of man here. 
When Mary and Joseph questioned Jesus, he politely said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business or in my father's house? What is the father's business? And for us, what are we to do? In the Westminster Catechism, the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? What is our ultimate purpose? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's a marvelous statement. It reminds us of what we were created to do and that there is true enjoyment in doing it. God, the author and creator of life, created us to worship him, to glorify him. And by glorifying God, we find that we actually enjoy him. We find fellowship and communion with our heavenly father that is eternal in scope. This is our true contentment. Being created to glorify God isn't just for God. Rather, we find that we, the created finite beings, are the ones who benefit infinitely. So as we literally are on the eve of a new year here, I realize a lot of us will make goals and plans for the next year of our lives. And may I encourage all of us, myself included, to spend more time in God's word, more time in prayer, more time in enjoying knowing God, glorifying God, and enjoying him forever. He invites us to be about his business, the Father's business. And may I also ask that you pray for this church, not merely that we would grow in number, but that God would grow this church to be useful for his kingdom. Luke begins his story of Jesus in the temple with Zechariah. And he ends his birth story of Jesus in the temple. Intentional? I think it probably is. Fellowship with God and his people is necessary to live a life devoted to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our minds are looking to a new year. Help us reflect on this past year. No doubt there are sweet memories for some and challenging memories for others. Help us in our frailty and our weaknesses to lean on you, to realize that true fulfillment only comes in knowing God and glorifying you so that we may have joy forever. In Jesus' name, amen.